The purpose of this program is not to prescribe a treatment to individuals. Listeners should consult their health care practitioner before attempting any treatment. Good morning and welcome to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Naiman, your host. Today's guest, Dr. Sandeep Johar, is a cardiologist and director of the Heart Failure Program at Long Island Jewish Medical Center. He's also the author of the best-selling memoir, Intern, A Doctor's Initiation, that details his two-year ordeal of doubt and sleep deprivation at a New York hospital. Dr. Johar is here today on Health Watch to discuss his latest book, Doctored, The Disillusionment of an American Physician, a book the New York Times describes as an extraordinary, brave, and even shocking document. Dr. Johar's sharply observed anxieties make him a compelling writer and an astute critic of the wasteful, mercenary, cronyistic, and often corrupt practice of medicine today. Welcome to Health Watch, Dr. Sandeep Johar. Thank you. You start out your book with a flashback, looking back at uh, the way uh, doctors were perceived 40 years ago, with more esteem, uh, a profession that was more respected than other professions, and, and lament the fact that today uh, both doctors and patients see the profession more as just any other job. So t- tell us a little bit about what you think has changed uh, in the intervening 40 years. Well, a lot has changed, and, uh, and it's had an adverse impact on the patient-doctor relationship. Um, doctors today just have so much more to do than they did 40 years ago. There's just there's there's more stuff, that, more tests, uh, more treatments um, that we have. So uh, there are limitations on the amount of time that we can spend with patients, listening to patients. That's um, in some ways uh, a success uh, of medicine because we do have so much more that we can do, but uh, it does uh, sort of limit... Um, the relationship that we that we have with our patients, um, and there's there's paperwork, um, there's uh, uh, you know the the uh, the, the litigation, um, and that's all well documented. But what I see is uh, at least for doctors that there's almost an existential crisis in the profession, because there's a sense that the way medicine has developed over the last 40 years or so has. Um, is preventing us from being the kinds of caregivers that we were trained to be, that we aspire to be when we were, uh, you know, entering the profession. And that's created a a real uh, spiritual crisis. Well, it, you describe also a, what seems like a um, perfect storm in the sense that with the rise of, of managed care and the, and the fee-for-service model, uh, where time isn't reimbursed, at least not in the same way as doing a procedure uh, is reimbursed, uh, it seems to be coupled with also a rise of of people living longer with uh, multifactorial chronic diseases that don't really fit into a ten minute office visit. Yeah, that's 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 right. I mean, you know, when 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 you have a patient who comes to see you with um, you know run of the mill symptom like say lower back pain, in most cases it's uh, Something that can be um, treated with, you know, basic physical therapy, maybe some uh, non-steroidal medication. Um, but judging whether it's a run-of-the-mill presentation of a symptom or if it's something unusual takes time. It takes uh, 
time to, to talk to the patient, to examine them, and when you try to cram that into a 10-minute visit, um, it ends up, you know, being uh, being difficult, and, and the patient and the doctor, uh, you know, very often feel short-shrifted. So um, what's what tends to happen frequently in American medicine is that a test is ordered, uh, some sort of uh, radiological procedure, MRIs, and we know to, that that the number of CAT scans administered to patients uh, has increased sevenfold in the last uh, two decades. Um, so that's an inordinate amount of radiation and also an inordinate amount of waste in our healthcare system. And some of that can be avoided. Actually, a lot of it, I believe, can be avoided if doctors and patients had more time to, to speak to each other. And it seems like a bias that's probably shared by both doctors and their patients that doing more uh, doing more imaging, doing more treatment is going to lead to better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, that, that's true to some degree. Um, <clears throat> sometimes patients come to the office and they actually ask for an MRI um, because they've had back pain and, and, and they want to know exactly what what the issue is. I think both doctors and patients to some degree have an unwillingness or inability to deal with uncertainty but just because we have so much that we can um, employ to close the gap in uncertainty for most diagnoses um, it just takes some money to do it so so doctors as well as patients very frequently want to close that gap so if someone comes in with lower back pain and they have a 95% probability of it being a benign slip disc well there's this compulsion to close that 5% uncertainty um, to reduce it to, to zero by doing a $1,000 MRI. In most cases, that's, that MRI is unnecessary and it's not going to lead to any change in management. So some of that wasteful spending is being driven by, um, by, by patients as well as by doctors trying to you know, get to the answer. Uh, some of it is frankly being driven by um, sort of more nefarious concerns, and that's really what the book is mostly about. Well, let's go there. You 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 talk about a time early in your career when you you're moonlighting with a, a cardiologist uh, in private practice to supplement your income, and, and you discover all sorts of things uh, in that uh, that year that are were alarming to you. Yeah, and that's really mostly what the book is about. It's it's a uh, you know it, put, it puts a lens on the healthcare mess in this country, but it's told through a personal story. And what I found when I started my practice um, was, you know, I, 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 it was 19 years after I graduated from high school when I took my first real job. Um, so it had been a long uh, and arduous journey, as it is for most physicians, as it is for a lot of professionals. Um, and I was really ready to, um, you know, sort of uh, try to, you know, reap some of the rewards for all those sleepless nights. And when I was in training, I was largely um, protected from the sort of day-to-day concerns of medical practice. You know, the focus was on learning about, you know, human physiology, uh, learning how to be a good doctor. Uh, sort of the, the culture of practice was was largely hidden. I mean, 
to at least to 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 a degree um, and when I started in practice, I was frankly shocked that there were all these doctors who would go to the doctor's lounge and just talk about how bad it was to be a doctor today and um and I was very surprised by that um I was actually pretty happy um i was I, I joined an academic practice at an academic you know teaching hospital uh in long island and 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 it was exactly the kind of work I wanted to do teaching uh students and 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 not really being driven by um concerns about money and sort of generating revenue as a lot of my private practitioner colleagues were you know having to do uh to to pay for overhead and sort of keep you know make make ends meet in the private model um but what i found was that uh after well there was a confluence of things but but you know we had our first baby uh uh my wife wasn't working so i ended up uh having to moonlight and so i joined this practice uh in queens um a cardiologist who was basically running a mill um and doing very um you know basically over testing uh on 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 patients and it was um you know it, it the, the whole thing was just uh really made me feel pretty dirty frankly and and I was in that practice for about a year year and a half and and uh and it, frankly and, and I eventually managed to you know extricate myself from it um but it was um where I learned how medicine is really practiced in some parts of this country. In case you just tuned in, we're talking today to cardiologist Dr. Sandeep Johar about his latest book, Doctored, The Disillusionment of an American Physician. Uh, Dr. Johar, you, you cite other unsavory practices in the book, uh, keeping patients in the hospital longer than necessary in order to bill more, um, accepting gifts from pharmaceutical companies, which is uh, most people have heard of, is a widespread practice. Um, and cross referrals among colleagues just simply to increase incomes so what do you have any um, thoughts for patients red flags to look for in terms of identifying practices or doctors that might be more geared towards generating income um, through screenings or procedures than than uh, diagnosing and and treating people in their best interests you know what I found in my experience is that patients have a uh, well-honed intuition when they're not being treated properly. Um, you know, there there are certain um, tests that have been shown to be largely uh, useless for most patients. For example, stress testing uh, people with um, with with uh, with no symptoms of heart disease um, or people who have recently had stents um, is really not called for, um, but it it ends up being the bulk of a lot of cardiology practices. Um, so, you know, one thing I think that most patients should should know about is that that um, that medical specialty societies like the American Board of Internal Medicine have created lists of tests that that should largely be avoided because they provide no use for most patients. And those those tests are some of the most frequently employed tests in American medicine, stress testing you know, asymptomatic patients. Most uh, 
you know, uh, X-ray or CAT scan imaging for lower back pain is is, is considered uh, not very useful. Um, so these are procedures that I would encourage most most patients to to read up on, and there there are lists of these procedures that are available online. Um, is it an ethical concern? When a doctor owns the machine that, or is leasing the machine that they're doing the procedure on, and so are are needing to pay back something in order to get even around something that um, is encouraging them to use the machine and more with their patients. Yeah, I mean that happens frequently. Um, you know, there are um, certain rules about uh, whether doctors can own. Um, imaging centers and other um, revenue-generating centers to which they can refer their patients. That's, uh, that's well established, but there's nothing about uh, inc- you know, having these imaging um, uh, machines, equipment available in the doctor's private office. That's largely off-limits uh, in the United States today. So, you know, you can have uh, uh, a stress camera or a nuclear camera in your office. You can have a treadmill in your office. You can have uh, echocardiography in your office. And the idea is that when the, when the tests are done at the point of care, they're more readily, the results are more readily available and it's better for patients. But the reality also is that when the doctor owns those those machines, they're more likely to employ them. And there's data to, sh- to show that doctors who own their own uh, nuclear cameras are three times more likely to order stress tests, for example. So, um, so that is a problem, and, and the, the reality is that, that in American medicine today, there, is, there are a lot of these perverse incentives that are in place for encouraging over-testing, and it largely stems from our free-for-service model, where doing more and more um, is, is reimbursed. Are, are you a, a advocate of the single-payer model, or do you have something else in mind as, a, as something to move towards instead of the fee-for-service? Well, I think that um, there are other competing models. Um, I think that uh, the value-based model of you know, paying for, um, for patient outcomes um, is a start. Um, there are other models that have been proposed. Uh, for example, you know, Stephen Brill in his book talks about the Kaiser model, um, and, which really has um, uh, a lot to say for it. When I was growing up in California, we went to Kaiser and we got really good care. And um, the, the Kaiser model is basically based on the idea that that doctors and caregivers should band together issue their own insurance, collect the premiums, and then decide how to pay rather than going to a third-party payment system that encourages overuse. And there's something to be said for that as well, but I don't think that's... I I don't think either of those models, the Obamacare value-based model or the Kaiser model, is going to do enough to control costs in this country, which is really one of the major problems with American medicine today. And so I've gradually come around to thinking that the single-payer model is really the way to go. Can you talk a little bit about um, the decline of general practitioners and also the decline of private practice? Um, 
and yeah. in, in regards to coordination of care is that a lot of people don't have a point person that's synthesizing care and making judgments about them as a whole person yeah it's it's one of the biggest problems in medicine today is uh, that it's so hard to find a good primary care doctor for most patients i mean where i live in long island um patients come to me all the time you know uh i'm a specialist and they'll come to me and say you know i'm looking for a general practitioner and it's very hard to find someone who doesn't have a two or three month wait list just because you know medical students residents they don't want to do primary care because it's so hard and it's also probably one of the lowest reimbursed of the medical specialties. Um, so, so what you have is the situation where there's a, a shortage of primary care physicians. The primary care physicians who are out there are are burdened, overburdened, with um, not just uh, paperwork, but just the number of patients that they have. And, you know, I alluded before to the fact that medicine is, has in some ways become a victim of its own success. There's just so much more to do um, that, you know, for example, uh, preventative care is, you know, we know so much more about what to do to prevent disease that, uh, that the average primary care physician could spend a large portion of their day uh, just arranging screening tests like colonoscopies and and uh, you know s- cervical screening, mammography, uh, and so on. So there, there's just so much to do that a lot of these primary care physicians are um, staying in their offices. They're not going to the hospital to see their patients. There's a, a real disconnect uh, in care when patients are admitted to the hospital. Um, and uh, that, I think, is a big driver of um, poor care as well as very expensive care. Because when you, when a patient is admitted to the hospital and the doctor who knows them best is is largely uninvolved in their care, what ends up happening is you you get these teams of specialists who get onto the case. Some of them for 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 real problems. Others for you know because of cross refer, refer, referrals. Um, and uh, these teams of specialists largely look at the patient through the lens of their organ expertise. And so the cardiologist will say, well, let's focus on, you know, the heart and the rhythm. The nephrologist will, will say, let's focus on the, 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 the fluid status of the patient and so on. And no one's really coordinating all the recommendations that are happening. And so uh, the 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 end product is largely fragmented care. Um, and I wrote in my book about a patient who was admitted to the hospital with with um, anemia and some shortness of breath, and he ended up uh, being seen by 13 different specialists over the span of one month. Wow. And he was discharged from the hospital uh, really no better. He's still short of breath. And in the, during the course of being seen by so many different doctors, he underwent seven procedures, including a bone marrow biopsy, uh, cardiac catheterization, insertion of a pacemaker, all these things, and and in the end, he still was no better. Because when you look at a patient, when you look at an, in, uh, an individual problem without, without 
seeing the big picture, and you need a doctor who's keeping sight of the big picture and, and the person at the center of it all. When you, when you lack that, then um, the patients end up going here and there for procedures, but, but they often don't get any better, and I've seen it over and over again. I would imagine that perhaps lowering the reimbursement for certain procedures and raising uh, reimbursement for coordination of care as a as a billable uh, uh, event would potentially be part of a remedy? Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, I, I, I think so. You know, people talk uh, a lot about doctor's salaries, um, and all doctors get paid you know, very well compared to the average person. Uh, no question about that. But some doctors get paid uh, obscene sums of money, and other doctors get paid relatively uh, less than they should for the amount of work that they're doing. And I think primary care physicians are in that group. And I think if we uh, reallocate some of the money that's going to uh, procedure procedural specialties like cardiology, which is my specialty, I don't do procedures, but... Uh, a lot of my colleagues do, and they earn a healthy salary. If some of that money could be uh, transferred to primary care, you would find that um, primary care physicians wouldn't have to see as many patients. They wouldn't be running on a treadmill seeing patients every 8 or 10 minutes to make ends meet. The patient with more time to, to see the patients, they'd probably be ordering fewer tests. Um, you may end up saving the whole health system money, as a result, um, more people will likely go into primary care, and you'll have you know better coordination of care. So, I mean, there are a number of reasons to 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 want that result. And and how has your book, Doctor, been received in the medical community? I would imagine you've gotten mixed responses depending on who, which type of doctor and what circumstances is reading reading the material. Yeah, I. Um, you know, it's it's funny. I mean, it's been mixed. Um, uh, right when the book came out, um, there there were actually a surprisingly large number of my colleagues who were very positive about about the book and um, were happy that someone was you know airing some of the concerns that they themselves had about American medicine. Um, in fact, I remember one of my colleagues came up to me and said, um, you know, hey, I, I hear you wrote this book and it's on the bestseller list. That's, that's great, but why are people buying the book? Everyone knows this is going on, you know? <laughs> so it's like there was that sense of... Um, and then there were a few folks who, who thought it was just... It, it was unseemly or not right to, to, you know, air some of these practices and... and uh, and, and my intention was not to to make it seem that that majority of doctors or you know even a large number of doctors is is practicing this way, but there are enough bad apples you know in the barrel that um, that that patients need to be on the lookout and they need to protect themselves with education because you know. Uh, the patient is probably the most underused entity in medicine today. Um, you know, we do all the tests and we do, but, but, you know, an educated patient is probably our best protection against um, 
a health system run amok. But isn't the bias a little more complicated? I, of course, the most egregious cases are people who are doctors who are consciously making choices to increase procedures, to increase income. But yeah. even but doctors who honestly and earnestly say that they're not being swayed by the, the lunch being provided by the pharmaceutical company, the studies have shown that they actually are too. Yeah. Um, and even the studies, whether they're done by on pharmaceuticals, whether they're done by a government agency or by a, sponsored by the pharmaceutical company, the odds of a favorable result change considerably. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, the pharmaceutical companies wouldn't be spending money uh, detailing physicians' offices unless they were getting something out of it. Right. Um, so, it, you know, we know that uh, from a substantial uh, amount of psychology research that just the very act of receiving a gift, um, you know, it creates a uh, sense of beholdenness to the, to the gift giver. And a recognition of the name of the medication in a more simple yeah, way, too. Yeah, yeah sure. Um, well, in our final minutes, just let me, I wanted to just ask you about writing and, and medicine. You, there's a long tradition in literature of doctors being writers, you know, whether it's William Carlos Williams or Joseph Conrad or others. Um, have you always been a writer? Is that something that that came later after your medical training? Yeah, I, I, I grew up uh, in an immigrant Indian family in California in the 1970s, and, um, and my father wanted uh, nothing to do wanted me to have nothing to do with with writing at least as a career he wanted me to become a doctor and when i initially said no to that i decided uh i, I told he, he wanted me to do something that was scientific um you know his favorite phrase was uh, non-science is nonsense and so i ended up going to berkeley i decided to study physics um, instead of medicine um, but writing which is something i was always interested in was really never entered my consciousness much because um, it wasn't something that you could really practice and make a living from um, in the end I, I ended up getting a PhD in physics and uh, a dear friend of mine got sick with lupus and and through the course of helping her through her illness and talking to doctors and going to support groups and so on I ended up getting attracted to medicine as a way to you know, really help people and um, and sort of break out of the laboratory and, you know, join the real world, as it were. So I decided to go to medical school. Um, before I went to medical school, though, I applied for a science journalism fellowship, um, and I got it. I went to Time magazine, and that's where I got, was exposed to journalism. So when I just ended up going to medical school, I kept in touch with some of the journalist uh, contacts that I had, and they encouraged me to write about medical school, and 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 then when I moved to New York to write about internship and residency, and that's how I started writing for the New York Times, and and that's what led to my first book, Intern. Uh, so, Doctor uh, Johar, unfortunately, we're out of time, but it, yeah. it was a pleasure reading Doctored, and it was it was a pleasure also to have you on Health Watch today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. We're talking today to Dr. Cardiologist Sandeep Johar about his latest book, Doctored, The Disillusionment of an American Physician. You've been listening to Health Watch. I'm Dr. David Damon, your host. Mm-hmm.